0: Greetings and welcome to First Impressions, a production of Marginality Radio. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks for joining me. Joining me today is Deepa Ayer. She's an activist and lawyer who is currently a senior fellow at the Center for Social Inclusion, and for many years she was the executive director of South Asian Americans Leading Together. Today she's here about her new book, We To Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants shape our multiracial future, which was published by the New Press in 2015. Welcome, Deepa.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: In the past, you've worked primarily as a lawyer, at times as an educator, but really working on shaping policy and social activism. I'm wondering if you could start with what made you want to write a book and what role do you think knowledge or awareness have in fostering equality?
1: Well, I wrote the book for two reasons in particular. One is that, as you mentioned, I have spent the bulk of my career working on issues affecting South Asian, Muslim, Arab, and Sikh immigrant communities as they have endured the domestic war on terror in the decade and a half since 9 11. And what I realized is that for the most part, many Americans have a very incomplete, and I would even say sanitized understanding of the post 9 11 experience. And I saw this firsthand, you mentioned that sometimes teach college students as an educator, and I I uh, noticed this firsthand in my classes where students who were, you know, toddlers when 9-11 happened really had very few markers in terms of understanding both the historic impact, as well as the ongoing impact of the post 9-11 backlash. So one big reason to write the book was to provide a more comprehensive understanding of what it means to live in the shadow of post 9-11 America. The second reason I wrote the book is because I really believe in the power of storytelling. I think that stories, when they are shared in the voices, of people who are enduring very difficult traumatic challenging situations can really be a way for us to connect with each other to cultivate values of empathy and care and so the book is organized as a series of stories of young kurdish muslim refugee for example in the state of tennessee who is dealing with the rampant Islamophobia in the Bible Belt, or a young man who is Sikh American who lost his mother in a hate massacre at a Sikh Gurdwara, or place of worship outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So those stories, I think, are also ways in which people who are the readers can really connect to who these people are. They might never have met them or heard about these communities, but they can connect to them through the stories and hopefully cultivate values of empathy and care not just towards them but towards their communities and the issues that they are facing.
0: Have your feelings changed about the, the role of storytelling or just greater awareness after the election?
1: You know I think that what I've noticed is the need for even greater storytelling has emerged in the wake of the election. I think that what we are finding is that there is confusion or questioning of whether certain lived experiences are real or true or accurate. And I am concerned that we're going to see experiences around injustice, issues such as profiling, surveillance, hate violence, be put to the side, be questioned as to whether they're authentic. In that kind of repressive environment, I think it is even more important for people to feel that they can share their stories through whatever media they choose to. And I think books like this and many others become more important to us so that we can be very clear and grounded in what our history is, even recent history that I write about, and how that recent history might be shaping or influencing the types of policies or rhetoric that we will see coming in the next administration.
0: And this book is great for that. You tackle a lot and part of the focus here is racial anxiety, bigotry, anti-immigrant sentiment seems to have really escalated in a post 9-11 America. In the book, you'd lay out that this is not a new phenomenon, but one of the key components in a post 9-11 world is the role of government in (laughs) this post 9-11 America, specifically things like surveillance and discriminatory laws. How has the legal context changed for South Asians, Arabs, Muslims, and Sikhs? And what are the consequences of these new policies in a post 9-11 America?
1: First of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, we obviously have seen anti-immigrant laws, exclusion laws since the turn of the 20th century. We have seen the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. So these sorts of systemic injustices are not new to this country but what happened after nine eleven and i write about this in the book is that we really had this mix of three different phenomena that came together and the government in terms of its policies and practices really exacerbated the impact of these phenomena which include racial anxiety because of the changing demographics in this country you know we're heading to a point in which the people of color populations will comprise the majority population in this country. And that has led to a lot of anxiety and responses of hate in various communities. The second trend that we've seen is around uh, xenophobia or anti-immigrant sentiment, and we see this, for example, when we think about the responses of many states to the inclusion and settlement of Syrian refugees, for example. And we also see it in terms of Islamophobia, which is sort of a broad blanket term that basically assumes that someone who is Muslim or perceived to be Muslim is either a terrorist or a terrorist-in-waiting. So we had these three phenomena come together in the wake of 9-11. And as you pointed out, the government's role in exacerbating these phenomena was markedly different than we have seen in the past. That is because of pretty much, I would say, since the day after 9-11 to now, we have seen recurring instances of government policies that profile and target muslim communities and people from certain parts of the world that are part of muslim majority countries we've seen this in terms of immigration policy national security policy we've also seen it in terms of surveillance of community members we know that in new york city for example muslim south asians and arabs have been profiled and surveilled when they're playing cricket and soccer games in public parks in brooklyn and queens or at restaurants that happen to be South Asian for example this is all recorded that this sort of community mapping and surveillance occurs on a regular basis so we have seen these programs and policies come together time and again in ways that I think many members of the general public don't even know about that have had a significant impact in contributing to this broader climate where we are also seeing rampant Islamophobia, reports of school bullying, hate violence, workplace discrimination, airport profiling. So all of it basically mutually reinforces each other and creates a climate of fear and suspicion.
0: One of the most harmful (coughs) policies that you mention is the national security entry-exit registration system. And Mm -hmm. recently there have been echoes of this system perhaps being implemented. Can you tell us what this policy was and what the effects were and how we should respond to the possible re-implementation of this type of government policy?
1: Yes. So NSEERS, the system that you talked about, which is also called special registration, was a policy that the government initiated in 2002 as part of this domestic war on terror That many people in the American public have absolutely no clue about. I often ask people when I speak to raise their hands if they've heard of NSEERS, and you'll see maybe three or four people in the room that even heard of it. But it is a very pernicious program, and it had a tremendous impact on immigrant communities. Basically, the program required males over the age of 16 who were on certain types of visas, students, work visas, tourist visas, if they were from, there were certain 28 countries that were included in the mix of whether you had to comply with special registration. So if you were 16 years and older and you came from one of these 28 countries which were all Muslim majority countries for the most part, then you were required to go to your local immigration office and have a discussion, conversation, interrogation with an officer there. About 80,000 people complied with special registration. About 13,000 of those people were put into deportation proceedings. And the government found and admitted that there was no national security conviction because of NSEERS. They had initially, of course, initiated it because they thought that it was important to know from a national security standpoint where and who was in this country from those regions I mentioned earlier. So for the most part, NSEERS has been dormant since 2003, 2004. And the reason that we're hearing about it now is because of the Trump administration's 100 day plan, which mentions something called the Muslim registry. We don't know what the details are, but we have heard from Trump surrogates is information that, you know, people who are Muslim would have to register. We don't know if that applies to immigrants or citizens. Surrogates have also talked about how the Japanese-American internment is good precedent for a Muslim registry. And of course, we have NSEERS as well. And so the reason that people are talking about it now is that we are hoping that President Obama will actually rescind the NCRS framework altogether before he leaves office to prevent the chances of a new administration actually putting into place a Muslim registry based on the framework and concept of NSEERS.
0: Now, in addition to these institutional policies, we also have individual hate violence and crimes against South Asians, Arabs, Muslims and Sikhs. How do laws trying to prevent these types of things happening work? Do they aid in combating these types of activities? And how do citizens that are affected by hate crimes and violence live with this type of anxiety and fear?
1: Well, you know, certainly civil rights laws are an important and valuable tool that communities have and that lawyers and policymakers have to ensure that everyone's rights are being protected, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's on the streets, whether it's inside a classroom. And so there are laws in place, thankfully, due to the struggle primarily of black Americans in this country in the 1960s to put these laws in place. And so the hate crime laws have changed quite a bit. They have evolved over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, at least on the federal level. And there are are many states that have anti-bias and hate crime laws as well. The challenge is that oftentimes you have uh, federal agents, local agents who are not well versed with our communities and are not able to understand whether something is a hate crime versus another sort of attack that is not based in bias. And so the lack of training, the lack of competency when it comes to understanding how our communities face violence really ends up uh, leading to less reporting. Another challenge is that our communities themselves are afraid to report and for good reason. Uh, there is always the fear that if you go to law enforcement, especially in the post-9-11 world, that uh, you may be reporting a hate crime, but then all of a sudden you may be asked questions about whether you pray at XYZ Mosque or what what's the last time you visited your homeland, right? And so people are afraid of getting caught in these other tangential investigations if even they report a hate crime. And then thirdly, we have, of course, civil rights entities in place around dealing with school-based bias, harassment, workplace discrimination and the like, and they have been extremely helpful in terms of opening investigations and pursuing complaints. But as you mentioned, these reports are on the rise, reports especially of hate violence against Muslim communities or those perceived to be Muslim are at levels that they were right after 9-11. Communities are indeed afraid. Communities are afraid to do anything from walking down the street wearing, you know, if you're a Muslim woman wearing a hijab. Many Muslim women are now taking self-defense classes to protect themselves from harassment and violence. People are afraid to go to their places of worship. There have been, you know, anti-Islam rallies held by Far right movements at many mosques in this country well before the election. So, people are worried about what could happen if they even go to their place of worship to pray. So, there are real ways in which this climate of fear and suspicion and targeting is affecting people who are Muslim, Arab, South Asian, and Sikh. And it is a real travesty that we are at this point in our country where people feel that they have to hide or subsume really important, fundamental aspects of who they are in order to feel safe.
0: In the book, you talk about the role of solidarity between communities and collaborations, and you you talk specifically about Black Lives Matter. Where does anti-Black racism intersect with post 9-11 policies and public bigotry? What do you think makes Black Lives Matter's movement effective? And what can we learn from their strategies for equality?
1: I think that, especially with the Movement for Black Lives, we have seen how communities have been very, very vocal and visible about the issues that have affected black communities for decades and decades. Uh, It isn't just around police brutality, as you know. It's about a whole host of issues that have led to economic injustices and housing injustices, educational injustices, really in every sector of society. And what I think Muslim Arab South Asians have gained from watching the Movement for Black Lives and taking part in solidarity efforts is number one, the real understanding that this is how you create change, that it is important to be out on the streets, it is important to disrupt, it is important to engage in civil disobedience. So I think that is a strategy and tool that many of the activists in our community have been learning. The second is that there are shared common struggles between our communities. They're not the same, they're not equal or equivalent, but there are similarities. So, for example, there are similarities between the war on crime that has affected black communities when you think about, say, stop and frisk of black youth in particular by law enforcement. There's a similarity between that and the surveillance of Muslim communities and the targeting of Muslim youth through countering violent extremism programs that are sort of seen as anti-radicalization programs in this country and so the similarities of our stories and our struggles have been very important to share because they also allow us to understand how the systemic uh, nature of policy and practice works and how we can actually push back on those to create neighborhoods and communities that actually are healthy and safe for all of us
0: Underlying much of the the work you do in the book is this notion of white supremacy, and I'm wondering what you make of the new visibility of white supremacy, if you could maybe parse out the relationship between the individual hatred that we see and systems of white supremacy, and how, how can we work towards dismantling these divisive racial hierarchies in America?
1: So I think fundamentally, the systems of white supremacy and the policies and the language of white supremacy is what has contributed to this climate where not just Muslim Arab South Asians, but other communities of color, Native Americans and many others feel that their rights are being endangered at every turn and I'm very concerned about what I see is not really a resurgence of the white nationalist movement I think it has always existed but the mainstreaming of it and the normalization of it that we have been seeing with this particular election cycle and since the election. I think it's very important that we don't call the white nationalist movement alt-right, that we don't use terms like that, that we actually call it for what it is. I think that's very important from the standpoint of people understanding the real dangers of these sorts of movements and these sorts of groups. Because earlier when I spoke about the Islamophobia, the anti-immigrant sentiment, and the racial anxiety all coming together, you know, we know that there are white nationalist groups that organize just based on those three particular trends in patriot groups who don't want immigrants coming in and settling here anti-muslim groups who are very islamophobic in nature groups that have been formed since president obama took office so we know that these groups have been on the rise that they continue to exist but again since the election we have seen and during the cycle we saw sort of a mainstreaming of these entities. And so I think it's very important that we're able to use the right terminology and the right labels to correctly characterize what these groups are about. I think it's important that we also are very aware and vigilant about the influence of these groups on policy and practice at every level in the country. And then lastly, it's not at all surprising, I'm sure, for your audience to hear that our communities. Muslim Arab South Asian communities are very concerned about what sort of violence they could be subjected to in terms of organized hate against them.
0: Deepa, this is a a fabulous book and you've done a great contribution to public knowledge about this post 9-11 world we live in. Is there any final takeaways you, you hope that future readers might gain from the book?
1: Well, my hope is, going back to kind of the start of the conversation, that the book is read and used by people who want to have and receive a more comprehensive understanding of the decade and a half since 9-11 and who who are looking for a primer to even understand the types of regressive policies that we might be seeing down the pike over the next four years. I also think that I hope that the book can be used as an entry point to having what I call race talks, where we actually have conversations, whether it's around a family dinner table or it's in, on college campuses, to actually talk about race rather than shy away from it, to have the frank conversation that you and I have had about these topics and issues that some people feel uncomfortable about, but I think that are very important for us to put out there in order to cultivate empathy, in order to understand history and to really be aware and vigilant in terms of being concerned and responsible residents in the United States.
0: Deepa, thank you for making the time to talk and thanks for writing this fabulous book.
1: Thank you so much, Christian.
0: Again, we were talking about We Too Sing America, South Asian Arab Muslim and Sikh immigrants shape our multiracial future. Published with the New Press. Thanks to DeepI Air for joining us today, and thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of First Impressions.